very quick run. Very impressed. We, uh, there is no position here at Faith when you sign up to serve that we don't bring you through a fair amount of physical training and rigorous exercise. So, Ron is just proving his faithfulness to the regiment. It's freaky, isn't it? Leave it up there for a bit because I want that to haunt us. Um, I, I hope you can tell from the picture that he's very, very high up. You can see all that ravine and gorge and everything. I want to appeal to your sense of adventure. I want to do a survey here. Those of you that are sort of naturally, I'm not saying you do this necessarily, but you're more inclined to be the daredevil. Let me see your hands. Small portion. Val, where's your hand? Okay. I saw some liars. I had to just call them out. The rest of us, though, and I'm in this camp of one who I was only raising my hand as an example, not because I am one. I am the type of person when we showed up to Funtown a couple weeks ago with the kids, about four of my kids, three or four of my kids ran instantly over to that like terror, that tower of terror or whatever that thing is that... Uh, Pastor Matt called it the elevator. I don't know if that comes from another park or not or something. And that's almost exactly how I describe it. I mean, it terrifies me, and I stay on the ground. And it's an exercise in trust in letting my children go and just saying, okay, you can ride that ride. And I see their little legs getting littler and littler and littler, and then they're dangling, and I just kind of, I can't watch. Very difficult for me. I believe the Lord is calling us, I'm going to use this metaphor here this morning, but I believe the Lord is calling us to surrender to walking a tightrope, to walking a line and staying on a path that if we falter, if we sway, if we start to lose our balance becomes immediately dangerous for us. And what I'm concerned about is that we in the, in the church, under the preaching of God and under the, the leading of his word and Holy Spirit, we sometimes look at this path as though it's some kind of option. That it's one of many to take. And this path over here, this is for you really aggressive people over here. You're going to go down the, down the middle and you're going to do the tight wire act and that kind of thing. And, but the rest of us, you know, we just kind of want to meander and stuff. I don't have that adventurous spirit built within me. Who knows what our reasoning is. But I, I guess what I want to convey is over the last several months that we've been talking about the passage in 1 Timothy 3, I hope I didn't lead anybody to believe that this was somehow some sort of optional pursuit. Because I believe that the things that God is calling us to do and calling us to take into account, the reason why he's elevated these requirements for the leadership of the church is because he wants the rest of us to follow suit. Why would he have those step up into a leadership position if it wasn't under the intention of us going, oh, that's how we're supposed to do it. Let's do it together. And so this isn't a... a, uh, a laying out of one of the many options in the path that the Lord Jesus Christ has laid out for us. This is a very aggressive calling, but it's such a narrow calling that any faltering, any teetering becomes perilous to our existence. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we've reviewed a bit of what an overseer is or what an elder is. We started just kind of uh, cracking open the lid, if you will, on some of the characteristics and the requirements that God has for his leader. A few weeks ago, we looked at how somebody needs to be above reproach, that their reputation is going to match the office that they're taking. 
Last week, we had fun with this whole phrase, the husband of one wife. If you weren't here, you need to get that recording, not because I gave it and I'm somehow promoting myself, but um, it's uh, easier to hear that in the privacy of your own home than it was to be in front of 300 people and watching all of your faces get red and all that sort of stuff. It was nice and embarrassing. But it was uh, uh, very important to stop and think about what is Paul requiring of the leadership of the elder or the pastor in this regard of being the husband of one wife. And we talked about how really the problem that Paul might have been addressing at that time was one of polygamy, one of boasting that I'm a sufficient man, I'm making enough, I can support all these different women's. Or perhaps it was a heart of lust to say, I, I don't need to just limit myself to one person. And there was a lot of that going on in the culture. And that's when we started to make it a little bit more relevant to where we are today, even though polygamy isn't something that we deal with uh, in every state and in every uh, street corner. We don't see it all around us. But, but what's at the heart of that, being the heart, having a one-woman-man mindset, is something that is uh, plaguing our, our uh, society, the difficulty of holding that standard. And so we talked about that. We slowed down a little bit on that. So it'd be good for you to get that if you missed it. But this week, as the scripture says, it says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, like we said, above reproach, the husband of one wife. And he's also supposed to be temperate. And that's where we'll stop for this morning. When I first saw the word temperate, not being really well versed in all the original language of, of every word that I'm seeing, I immediately thought of somebody that kind of holds his temper. That word temper I saw being right in there. And there's certainly a piece of that, an element of that in what's going on. But the word is much bigger than just you being able to bite your tongue or hold back your fist. Though those would be probably important things for the leader to have. But the better definition of the word temperate, perhaps, could be used in another passage of Scripture, because what we're getting here is a list of requirements. We're not getting a lot of how-to. It doesn't say the man of God must be temperate, and so therefore he should approach it this way. Paul gives us some help in another passage of Scripture, as he wrote a letter to another church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this in verses 7 and 8, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Very profound, right? Some of you working different shifts, shifts are going, I wish. But, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And I think that's very important. We certainly know that's not always the case, but it's important to see the spirit of what Paul is talking about is that we have a tendency to want to cover our evil deeds with darkness. Much easier for us to operate in those evil deeds under the cover of night. So in contrast, he says in verse 8, but since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The key word in there for this passage is the word sober. And you and I immediately have a, a drunken or non-drunken context that we would put that word in. And that's certainly a great description because if I said the, the man of God needs to be able to walk the high wire soberly, now think about that image. Could you imagine the guy just kind of walking up going, let me take a crack at this. I think I'm ready. Which line? Which line am I walking? We'd go, don't do it. Or some of us, you know, that have the... Uh, <laughs> The little sick side of our personality would be like, oh, I don't see where this goes. <laughs> Most of us would cover our heads and say, I do not want to watch this train wreck. This cannot go. People would be trying to stop him. Don't do it. And he's like, I'm fine. I can do it. 
So sobriety in the common sense, in the, in, the, in, the, in the context that you and I would think is a great metaphor, is a great picture. But it's just not an abstinence from being drunk from alcohol. It has more to do with walking balanced. It has more to do with you and I keeping our feet, finding our center of gravity, being able to focus on the object in front of us and making it very cautiously to the other side. When Paul says walk in sobriety, to, to live in the daylight, let us be sober, he gives us right after that a little help with how are we supposed to do that. You know, people are always saying, uh, especially around either funeral times or things when they're trying to honor the person that is going to be spoken about, um, or if you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, you'll hear this in response a lot of times from folks where they say, look, my faith is very important to me. I hold it very, very close. I believe in, 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 in God and I believe what I believe and no one's going to shake that from me. And yet at the same time, you see a lifestyle that doesn't quite match those words. Instead, what you start to interpret is well, what they mean is, yes, it's private and it's personal to me, but don't interfere with my definition of faith. Don't interfere. Don't start rocking the boat and start making me having to be one of these Jesus wackos and everything. I've got a faith that's personal and private to me. I should be able to keep it low key and private to myself without you meddling with how I live my life. So often our words, and this is how we've been praying throughout our worship time, so often our words are geared towards what we think we want others to hear us say we believe. And then our life has a tendency to be, to be on a separate track. And th this is a confession before you, too. I mean, I, I, I sit there and I say things and I'm like, do I really, do I really believe what I just said? And you don't really want to take your words back because you know you should believe it. Sometimes you say it and you go, but I'm not sure if I'm living that 100%. I'm not sure if I'm really uh, adhering to the counsel or the advice that I'm given. It happens all the time. We have this dichotomy that goes on in our, in our life where we, we really want to be the person that others think we are or that our dog thinks we are, right? We really want to be that person that we present sometimes, but it's really difficult to be that person. I would say that if we're going to embark, we're going to take our first step on this wobbly wire and we're going to start walking over this canyon. There's a few things that we have to be absolutely sure about if we're going to make it to the other side. We don't have the luxury of spouting a lot of things that we know we're supposed to believe that don't really hold it true to our core. In order for a person to really start figuring out how to walk on a tightrope, and I don't walk on a tightrope, but I can understand the elements of it to some extent. When you first start putting your foot on something wobbly, you better know where your center of gravity is. You better have a little bit of science informing how you're supposed to adjust. You're supposed to get your muscles to start working towards this. If you just think, well, it's just a matter of just cleansing my mind, focusing on the moment, and then I'm going to just do it. There's a lot of physical play that comes into preparing your body to respond to the adjustment. So every time you feel that little wiggle, it's like what happens in your muscles and in your core that starts to adjust and balance. You have to know where your center of gravity lies. You have to understand your own physical creation, your own physical body, and understand how it's supposed to adapt. Now, if I say that I believe God exists, if I say that I believe He is Lord, if I believe that I say He is um, in charge of everything, and yet every time I step out on something, I'm all wobbly and I'm shaky and I'm losing my balance, somebody would say, well, 
I thought you said you believe this in your core. Where where is your action? Where is the where is the underscoring of of how you live your life that matches what you say? I, I don't know if anybody else can relate to this. I know a couple of people can, I guess I should say, but I love Bigfoot stories. I love Bigfoot. You never know where I'm going in a particular. What a great segue. Speaking of Bigfoot. And, and I'm not saying I believe he's real. I doubt that he is. I'm sorry to burst anybody's bubble. Even though recently he came up in the news, there was some DNA testing with hair and all that stuff, and they did all that kind of thing. And that's what got me thinking about it. I'd be like, why am I so drawn to that or Loch Ness Monster? It's like, I just want to believe that this mysterious creature exists. I want to see the things that blow everyone's science mind going, I thought we had that all figured out. Now we don't. I just love all the things that make us smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more human and make God God. And not that Bigfoot's going to prove that God exists, but just throw me a bone. You know, I just want to. You have your space stuff and what goes on in the solar world. I just want Bigfoot. That's all I want. So if I say I believe he exists. And I think he's out there somewhere. You join me on a hike through the woods and you say, hey, did you bring your voice recorder? Did you bring your camera? Did you bring your thermal imager to see if you can pick up anything? Did you, you know, did you bring even a weapon to protect yourself? Because what if he's not the nice passive creature that everyone says he is? And maybe the reason why he hasn't been proven is because he keeps gulping them down every time they discover him. And if I say I haven't brought any of those things along, you'd say, I really doubt that you think he's real. I think you're just saying that because it's interesting, it's fun, you're playing along, and it's sensational and that kind of thing. It's interesting to you, and that's about it. If I was a real believer, I would come equipped to either prove his existence or protect my life if I ran into him or something like that. But I don't. If I'm ever in the woods, it's pretty much like, how do I get out of here and that kind of thing. It's about as far as I take it. I don't really expect I'm going to run into him. I don't really expect I'm going to see him peeking around a tree. I don't really believe he exists. There's something in me that wants to believe. Anytime there's a little bit of data, I get interested in it. But is he in my core? Absolutely not. And what I believe is what starts to create the balance in my life. If I can start to say that I believe that God is perfect, that all things answer to him because Jesus is in charge. If I believe the scriptures from Colossians 1.17 that says he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And if I understand that I am a broken, flawed individual, unable to get myself across that cable, across the ravine, it's all up to him. It's going to change my center of gravity. It's going to help me understand how I'm supposed to balance. It starts with what I truly believe, not what I say I believe, because my belief is going to drive my actions. If you take a quick view of Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see what is nicknamed as the Hall of Faith. What you'll see is, is men are acknowledged for their faith, but their faith is what produced their action. You see men listed like Abel, who uh, was the brother of Cain, and God said, I want a particular sacrifice. I want a livestock sacrifice. And so Abel said, I'm going to trust God that this is what he wants. Cain, on the other hand, said, I'll do my own thing. What I'm familiar with, I'll take the growth and the produce from the ground and offer it. And it didn't work. Noah, you might have seen the movie. He was there uh, preparing an ark. And Noah, by faith, stepped out and built a boat. That nobody understood the concept, nobody understood what he was doing. But he did it because his faith drove him to action. 
By faith, Abraham offered up his own son, Isaac. And regardless of whether he thought, because if you understand the passage, he has his son laid out. They've gone on this journey, lays him out, and he is ready to drive that knife in his son's uh, uh, body to sacrifice him to the Lord. And regardless of what Abraham specifically believed, did he believe that an angel would come and hold his hand like he did? And say, it's okay, we understand your commitment. Or did he believe that if he had followed through with it, God was going to resurrect his son anyway? Or did he believe that this is just what God's calling me to do and maybe he's changed his mind? He said that he'd bless me. He said he'd give me a great nation, but maybe he's changed his mind. I don't know God. I don't know his ways. Regardless, Abraham said, if God is asking me to do it, I trust him enough. He is in the core of my being. He is at the center of my gravity. I can follow through and obey him. And these are just a few of the examples we see playing out in Hebrews chapter 11, which demonstrates to us that faith will produce action. You and I can say on one side of the ravine all we want, that I believe God exists and that I believe he's called me to do this and I can believe he can hold me up. But it gets a little shaky when we say, "Okay, I'm going to take my first step now. The first step to learning how to find your balance. And make it across the ravine is to find your center of gravity, to really have the faith in trusting in what you believe. Also, as the scripture told us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, that it wasn't just about our faith. That was the breastplate of faith and of love. But it also as a helmet, we're putting on the hope of salvation. One of the key tricks to keeping your balance, we know about finding our, our center of gravity, change, training our body to adjust, but also they tell you it's a lot easier to stay on your feet if you focus on one point. I'm seeing this little speck on the, on, the, on the ground here, and so if I'm looking at that and I go to balance on one foot, it's going to be a lot easier to stay on that, and then if I start looking at you and I start, I can instantly feel my leg getting all shaky and wobbly because I'm looking off and I'm losing my balance because I'm not focused on this one point. And as I do that, everything starts to zero in and focus in. And I have looked through a lot of pictures of the people that are walking across those things, and they all seem to be looking down. And I don't think they're looking down and be like, whoa, that's going to be ugly if I fall. They're looking at the rope ahead of them. They're saying, this is the course I need to stay on. As Thessalonians, First Thessalonians is telling us, that is our hope. It's the object of our faith. It's what we really trust in. Yes, I can say I really believe in something, but if I trust in it and I expect it to come through for my salvation, I'll act on it. It's important for us to look at hope in a different sense that we nor- than we normally would. Because we look at hope as a 50-50 proposition. Maybe it'll swing my way. Maybe it won't. But hope is really a concrete expectation. This isn't just for the guys with great imaginations or a great drive. Say, I'm going to act out and I'm just going to believe it. It's going to happen. Who knows what the outcome would be? This is for those of us that say, no, God has never failed in the past. Why would he start now? See if this sounds a little familiar to the children of God song that we sung earlier. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, the scripture says, Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. 
our faith, what we believe in our core and are willing to act on has to be something concrete, not just this willy nilly. Well, I hope it works out for me. Think about some of these words in that passage. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away and reserve. These are concrete things that we can bank on. Being steadfast and stable means finding our security in something bigger than we can create for ourselves. I believe the reason why we're so shaky in the world, even, even uh, those that are outside of this church and not under the, the sound of my voice right now, the reason why we're so shaky is because we trust in the things that others have created other than God. We trust in our own ability to produce. We trust in our own ability to come through. I want to just play out a little bit of a contrast here for a couple of minutes that we find later on in 1 Timothy, uh, in the letter to, uh, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, beginning in chapter 4, in verse 10, Paul says, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So on one side, you've got the guy who has fixed his hope, he's locked in, he's staring at his object, saying, I, my object that I'm focusing on is the living God. So let's see how he contrasts that. A couple chapters later in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So on one hand, we have the guy who's fixing his eyes on the Lord, fixing our eyes in God, and we'd understand that that would be the better route to go. And on the other hand, we see the guy who's set up a life for himself to trust in what he can produce, the material uh, aspects that he can produce. I want to caution us to say, let's not jump so quickly down the rich man's throat and say, you see, you're so greedy and you're so focused on these uh, monetary possessions and, and material wealth and everything. God's saying you shouldn't be trusting in those. But those of us that struggle perhaps week to week or paycheck to paycheck or we're still making payments on things or stuff, could we not say that as much of our mental space is occupied by how we're going to get enough money in order to survive? We pick on the rich and we say, well, they're just focused on money. They just think about money all the time. But I know in my own scenario, I think about it quite a bit, too. The more children show up under my roof, I'm like, how am I going to afford this? And so it becomes a, a, a real constant struggle to not be consumed with that which I can produce with my own hands or my own ability in order to provide for me and those that are trusting in my provision. So, yes, the message is specifically to the rich where, where Paul is telling Timothy, make sure you're preaching this, make sure you're sharing this so that if you have those that are wealthy in your midst, in your assembly, make sure they're, they're striving to be rich in good works. But it doesn't mean the application ends there. And isn't it funny, though, that we call financial abundance security? We talk about investments as securities when it really delivers no lasting security. We pay off something and we feel like, wow, I've got a few extra bucks in my pocket now. And then we find something else to spend it on. We save it just to watch the market wash it away or some unforeseen expense come. And we've got to uh, spend our savings on the things that just keep life moving and maintained. It's not security at all. In fact, it's not a question of how much stuff you have, but how much your stuff 
has you. So we don't need to get caught up in the amounts of what is enough, what's too much. Uh, should this person have, remember last week we talked about whether or not this person should have a car for every day of the week or if this person should just have two vehicles in the driveway. Or These are, these are all very undetermined, unspecified things as far as the Bible is concerned. But one thing that God is absolutely clear on is the amount that our material possessions or our desire for those possessions has our heart. Those are the things we need to give back to the Lord. And say they don't belong in my life in the sense of how much I require them to come through for me. If I am staring at the cable, if I'm watching where I'm supposed to walk, my hope and my certainty is on the provision of God, not on what I can produce. I can get all ready for this walk. I can get strong. I can get all of these things. I get so prepared for walking across this cable. I can adjust for wind. I can adjust for balance. I can make sure my diet is right. I can make sure my muscles are strong and get so ready that an airplane comes and cuts right through my cable. I don't have any control over what the other elements are doing. I don't have any control over whether or not the weather is going to change. And halfway through now, I've got a slippery cable I've got to deal with. If I was trusting in my own ability to get across that, that ravine, I will fail. I've got to have my hope anchored in something concrete. Lastly, I would say that we have to be careful to move cautiously. That passage in 1 Thessalonians 8 said that it was a a breastplate of faith and love. If I'm going to scurry across that line, if I'm just going to hurry up, no matter what's in my path, no matter who's in my way, because I'm freaked out and I'm panicked and I just need to get across to the other side, I am not doing it the way the Lord has me to prepare for it, and I won't make it to the other side. Being in a hurry doesn't help my chances of surviving. And when the Bible talks about love, the Bible is talking about so, something so much deeper than we usually give it credit for. Love is the ultimate expression of our faith. We said that our faith needs to be the thing that we find as the center of our gravity. Well, if it really is, then I am going to love others properly. That love needs to be the final and the ultimate expression of our hope. If I really believe that the Lord is my salvation, able to come through no matter what the circumstances are doing, I will still love others around me properly. I beat this definition like a, uh, like a dead horse, and I do it on purpose because I keep thinking back to the very first time one of my pastors in my history had given this definition, and I loved it. So I hope that I get a little credit for something down the road from you. If not, oh well. I'm anchoring on something much deeper than your affection for me. This is simply, uh, this is the simple definition of love. Doing the best for the one loved. What is the best that this person, the object of my love, needs from me? Not what do we feel is right for the moment. What do they seem to be nagging and complaining about that I'm not doing enough of? What could I do to secure my relationship with this person to make sure I get the response that I need or any of those things? But simply to boil it down and say, what is God's best for this person and what opportunity do I have to contribute to God's best for this person? Be it in my marriage or in my parenting, in my work relationships or in anything. If I am really seeking to love, which is going to be the final expression of my hope and my faith, then I'm going to be obedient to the Lord in that definition of what is best for them. Now think about how that creates balance in your life. Think about how that makes your walk across the cable even easier. 
Remember what I said, if you take your eyes off the little focal point, you start looking around and you get wobbly. That's what happens when we mess up our definition of love. We start looking at, well, did you think I loved you? Are you getting enough love for me? And you start, you look around. Well, this person's screaming for this over here and this person wants this from me and, and I don't really know how to. You're not looking at your focal point. You're not staying on point with the line that's ahead of you, the one that you need to be faithful to. So staying, staying faithful and consistent to God's definition of what others need, what's best for them, is what keeps us on the wire. Where do you find that definition? You find it in the wisdom of his word. The more familiar we become with God's word, and because this is an entire description from cover to cover of how God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to know how best we are to love people, just get familiar with this because that's all he's demonstrating to us here. So the more familiar we become with the scriptures, the better our balance becomes, the more we're able to focus in on something. And then we start to walk cautiously, being in a hurry to just get through the other side, tramples over people. It ignores other needs. It's just focusing. Well, I don't want to fall off. I got to make it to the other side. So let me ask you just a few questions before we close. How much do you trust? In God's word, how much do you trust in his word to give you the right definitions of how to live, the right instructions, the ability to make your next step clearer? How much do you really trust in his word? Do you really believe that he's real? Silly question in church, isn't it? But think about it. Do you really believe he's real and do you really believe he's coming again? Or every time we do this communion thing, and we say, we're going to keep doing this until he comes back. And you say, yeah, but it's been a couple thousand years. We're still doing communion. Do you really believe he'll come again? In what or in whom do you hope for your rescue? Is Jesus really going to be sufficient enough to come through for you for your salvation? Or is it Jesus plus a great relationship? Is it Jesus plus that uh well-providing job? Is it Jesus plus that safe church existence? Is it Jesus plus anything else? Or is it just okay to be trusting in him alone? And how well do you love? According to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us a great definition of what love really is. And so out of that would come several questions. Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you generous? How about humble, courteous, unselfish? Are you controlled? Are you sincere and with pure motives? We could look at anything on that list and say, probably not enough. And yet that is the definition of what ideal love is all about. It's up to us to find our center of gravity to fix our eyes on our focal point so that we don't get shaky and start falling all over the place. And it's also important for us to move cautiously, to slow it down and say, Lord, help me to love those around me better so that I can be faithful to this calling, so that I can make it across this canyon. Faithful to you. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward, those that are, are present with us for this service, because we're going to take just a few moments. Guys, if you would come on down. We're going to take just a few moments and pray uh, for Ben. We had a little fun with him through the video, but this really is a serious calling. and He's responding 
uh, to something the Lord has laid on his heart. And we are really privileged and pleased to be a part of that part of that growth process. And so we want to take just the last couple of minutes of our service together and, and lay hands on him and to pray for him. We ask the elders to come. Ben, why don't you just come right up here? I want to see your beautiful face. And uh, I'm going to ask... Uh, I'm going to ask Ron, if you would, please just uh, pray over Ben and uh, have the Lord to have his way in his life. Oh, boy. I tell you, <laughs> Holy Spirit's been working on me all service. So here we go. Father God, we uh, can I call you Benjamin? <laughs> we lift up uh, Benjamin to you, and we would ask that your hand would be upon him right now. We know, or We already know that it is. But he is going to be standing in the pulpit someday. And your word said that those men that do are held to a higher standard. And I uh, just ask that you would open his ears to, uh, to build and everything that he has to say to him. But more importantly, what you have to say to him, Lord. Um, we've had a fantastic uh, teacher and preacher here for 23 years. And uh, just ask that. Ben would learn as much as he possibly can as he gets the uh, gets the uh, fire hose for the next six months, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.